Grab your Bibles, would you please? And go to the Old Testament with me, 2 Kings chapter 4, Old Testament. Second Kings chapter 4. Starting from the beginning, just sort of work your way back. When you get to Second Kings chapter 4, we're going to be talking about Elisha. We started last week. I want to do one more week on Elisha and just share some things. As I've been studying over the summer, a few things hit me. And this is a passage that really just for some reason just stuck. And I wanted to dig into it. And it's, and it's actually just stories. And then like coming to church and hearing a good story, right? There's four great stories in this chapter. Before we dig into it, I was just thinking about what's gone on in the last week or two. When you think about everything that's taken place in our nation, and even locally, um, sometimes you sit back and say, God, why can't we just get along, right? The tension that's taken place, the fighting down south, has stirred up more conversations across the U.S. than anything else. And we look around and and, and just think, why can't we get along? What's the big deal? And then we have, even this past weekend, sports in a baseball game where the bench is cleared for a fight at home plate and it didn't happen just once, not just twice, but three times in one game. And I was amazed. Suspensions took place, multiple ejections, obviously. But it doesn't stop there. It happens in local schools where a fight breaks out. Fights at home. And again, that old good old saying is like, can't we all just get along, right? Why is there so much hatred? Why is there so much tension? Why are fuses so short? What we need about right now is what? Love, right? Need love. Have you ever felt like the world just needs to apply God's love and it would be okay? Isn't it just like every moment of tension, you just like just rip open this and apply love and it'd be okay? Or maybe we, we grab out our spiritual first aid kit, God's word, open it up and just apply love, right? Why can't we get that? Why can't this world come to its senses and say, this is what we need? It's evident, isn't it? That we're living in a world which is in need of God's love. Why don't we get that? When we feel like there's no love, what do we do? Maybe we look to heaven and we blame God. God, it's your fault, right? Why, why don't we have enough love down here? Or maybe we look to God. God, we need more love down here. Isn't he the God of love? Not a God, the God of love. And we think, shouldn't he be taking care of all this? Well, I'd like to say he is. Sometimes we just don't see it. Second Kings chapter 4. Here's this great story. There's four stories. We'll give you the first one, okay? So let's read. Second Kings chapter 4, verse 1. One day, the widow of a member of the group of prophets came to Elisha, and she cried out, My husband, who served you, is dead, and, and you know how he feared the Lord. But now a creditor has come threatening to take my two sons as slaves. What can I do to help you? Elisha asked. Tell me, what do you have in your house? Nothing at all except a flask of olive oil, she replied. Elisha said, borrow as many empty jars as you can from your friends and neighbors. Then go into your house with your sons, shut the door behind you, 
Pour olive oil from your flask into the jars, setting each one aside as it is filled. So she did as he was told. Her sons kept bringing her jars to her, and she filled one after another. Soon every container was full to the brim. Bring me another jar, she said to one of her sons. There aren't any more, he told her, and the olive oil stopped flowing. Verse 7, when she told the man of God what happened, he said to her, now sell the olive oil, pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on what is left over. Now this is miracle number one. Okay? It's a great story. The woman and her sons are in debt. They have nothing left. All they have is a small jar, a small flask of olive oil. That's it. That's all they've got. They're looking around the house. We have nothing to sell. And it's a very dire situation because if you have nothing and you owe a debt as a mom, a widow, guess what you have to sell next? Your sons. Can you imagine that, selling your sons off to somebody to be a servant, to be a slave, so that you have now money to pay off your debts? I can't imagine a moment like that. I can't imagine what was going through her mind, thinking, there's no way I'm going to sell off my sons. How heartbreaking it would be for her to think, I'm going to have to give up not just my possessions, but my children to get out of debt. All I have is this olive oil. Use it for cooking, use it for lamps, use it for fuel. It's all I got. And in this moment, God's servant, Elisha, does something incredible, something remarkable. He tells her, you go gather as many jars as possible. Just look around your house, find whatever you can. She's thinking, I don't have anything, remember? I'd sell those if I did. Go to your neighbors, go to your friends, go to family, anybody you know. Find as many jars as you can and just bring them back. So they went and found his man. They brought him back and brought him back. And then in that moment, the miracle took place. She took that little flask and just poured it into a big jar. And it just kept coming out. And then she goes to the next big jar and it just kept coming out. It just never stopped. It stopped when there were no empty jars left. It was almost, you know, we sort of talked about God's provision uh, being as sort of as large as their faith and their willingness to obey. Like last week, we talked about digging the ditches uh, in, in, the, in the valley. It's like as many ditches as they dug, as much water came in, right? Well, as many jars as you find is as much as I will fill. If you have little faith, you'll get little. If you have large faith, you have large. Is sort of what when we're looking at this, right? But it's an incredible miracle. To me, this is an act of compassion of God, looking at those who don't have much and saying, I know you don't have much. I see it. Just be willing to trust me. I'll give you some instruction. Just trust me and go do it. And if you obey me, you'll see what happens. 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 8 to 37, a longer passage, story number 2. Let's read this one. One day Elisha went to the town of Shunem. A wealthy woman lived there. She urged him to come to her for a meal, home for a meal. After that, whenever he passed that way... He would stop there for something to eat. She said to her husband, I'm sure this man who stops in from time to time, he's a holy man of God. Let's build a small room for him on the roof and furnish it with a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp. Then he'll have a place to stay whenever he comes by. One day, Elisha returned to Shunem, and he went up to this upper room to rest. He said to his servant, Gehazi, 
Tell the woman from Shunem, I want to speak to her. Well, when she appeared, Elisha said to Gehazi, Tell her we appreciate the concern you have shown us. What can we do for you? Can we put in a good word for you to the king or to the commander of the army? No, she replied, my family takes good care of me. If there's a little hashtag there, she'd say hashtag well off, okay? This remarkable relationship between Elisha and the woman began when the woman sought to do something for the prophet. That's how it all began. Elisha didn't seek anything from this woman. He wasn't like, what can I get from you? She's like, well, what can we do for you? I mean, they're well off. They're able to add on to their house, which wasn't done often in this time. With the approval of her husband, they made that room. So whenever he traveled through the area, here's a special place. You got your own room. You got your own lamp, your own chair, you got your own bed. You got everything in there. Now, on the surface, it didn't think or at least look like she needed anything from Elisha, Right? Now, the woman before, the widow with the two sons, they needed to pay off their debt. They needed everything. This one, who woman and her husband, who have everything, need nothing. Somewhat. She didn't seek anything from the Lord, even as she served God, even as she served Elisha and took care of him. She didn't want anything. Everything she had was fine. But we all know how it works, right? If we were to walk out of here today... We, we probably know that a lot of us in this room were not well off. We walk in here and we say, how are you doing? Good, fine, good. And we do that, right? But underneath those layers, each of us knows I'm not doing good today. It's been a rough week. Had this go on in my life. I'm hurting this way. This relationship went bad. This went bad at work today. And we hide it so well with the, the good old churchy face, Right? We walk in there, oh, good, good, I'm fine, right? Maybe like this woman and her husband. Oh, I'm fine, Elisha, it's all good, it's all good, right? Look at verse 14. Later, Elisha asked Gehazi, what can we do for her? Gehazi replied, she doesn't have a son, and her husband's an old man. Call her back again, Elisha told him. When a woman returned, Elisha said to her as she stood in the doorway, next year at this time, you'll be holding a son in your arms. No, my Lord, she cried. Oh, man of God, don't deceive me and get my hopes up like that. But sure enough, the woman soon became pregnant. And at the time, the following year, she had a son, just as Elisha had said. Now, sometimes we may think that God is scheming at ways to get us, right? You ever think about that? I think God's just trying to look for a way to get me. Do you ever think that maybe God's looking for a way to give to you? Do you ever think that maybe God's scheming to bless you? So we always look at the opposite way. And in this situation, this woman who's asked for nothing, who's yet barren, she doesn't have a child. And in this time and period, well, that's, that's a thing of rejection. The pains of a woman, and I cannot understand this, I can't speak from it firsthand, but the pains of a woman to not be able to have children, in a, in especially in a time and age like this, there is something wrong with you. God must not like you. And there's all these things that a woman then takes on and her identity is who she is based on whether or not she can have kids. And it was devastating to women. As it is even today sometimes. And God's like, I'm not scheming to get you. 
I'm scheming to give to you. I've got something that I just want to do for you, right? And God ultimately delivers on the promise that he made through Elisha with blessing her with a child. And the good truth is that God overrules our objections in favor of his greater purpose. Because what was she like? She's like, no, 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 don't, don't, don't even promise me that. Don't even. It's like she's objecting to this. But God's like, no, 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 I want a favor. I want to bless you. And to this barren woman, this promise seemed too good to be true. And, and again, the woman who generously provided so much for the prophet of God is now being blessed back by God through the prophet. Blessed beyond material things. However, as we all know in life, that the road to greater things is never smooth, is it? There's always bumps along the way. There's always detours along the way. We just are finishing up summer, and we know what the orange cones are throughout the roadways, right? They slow us down. Oh, great. One way. Right lane closed, right? Isn't that the way life is? Just when you think you're getting somewhere on time, all of a sudden, boom, something slows you down and detours you. Check out what happens in verse 18. One day when her child was older, he went out to help his father, who was working with the harvesters. Suddenly he cried out, my head hurts, my head hurts. His father said to one of his servants, carry him to home to his mother. So the servant took him home, his mother held him in her lap. But around noontime he died. Pastor David uh, Guzik said this of this passage. He said, if you have poured yourself into a promise you received that went unfulfilled. And now the frustration, the bitterness, and hopelessness of feeling that your faith is wasted. But if God is the one that promised it, he's the one that can resurrect it. And what Pastor David is saying here is like, this is something she'd longed for so long, but she never said it out loud because she didn't want her hopes to be dashed. Now she has a child, and now that child's taken away. And it's like, God, I wanted this so bad. This is why I didn't want it, because I knew if I lost it, it would hurt even more. And as Pastor David said, but if God is the one that promised it, he's the only one that could resurrect it. And in verse 21, it says, She carried him up, laid him on the bed of the man of God in Elisha's room, which she had made for him, and she shut the door and left him there. She didn't prepare him for burial. It was as if she was preparing him for something else. The faith of this woman could have been, you know what? I think God can do something with this boy, with my son. And she had no doubt that Elijah had raised the widow son of Zarephath. And so if Elijah could do that, could not Elisha do that as well for me and my son? Look at verse 22. She sent a message to her husband. Send one of the servants and a donkey so that I can hurry to the man of God and come right back. Well, why go today, he said. It's neither a new moon festival or a Sabbath. And she said, it'll be all right. He was thinking, you're going to go see the prophet because of some kind of religious festival or something. Verse uh, 24. So she saddled the donkey and said to the servant, Hurry, don't slow down unless I tell you to. As she approached the man of God at Mount Carmel, Elisha saw her in the distance. He said to Gehazi, Look, the woman from Shunem is coming. Run out to meet her and ask her, Is everything all right with you and your husband and your child? Yes, the woman told Gehazi. Everything's fine. See, the woman didn't want Elisha to hear it from her servant. She wanted Elisha to hear it from her lips, from her mouth. She wanted Elisha to see her grief, not what was coming from his servant. The woman didn't waste time. She went right to Elisha. 
She went right to the higher authority, bypassed Gehazi, the servant, and said, I've got to share something with you. Look at verse 28. She said, didn't I ask you, did I ask you for a son, my Lord? And didn't I say, don't deceive me and get my hopes up? Then Elisha said to Gehazi, get ready to travel, take my staff and go. Don't talk to anyone along the way. Go quickly, lay the staff on the child's face. But the mother said, as surely as the Lord lives and you live yourself, I won't go home unless you go with me. So Elisha returned with her. Gehazi hurried on ahead, laid the staff on the child's face. Nothing happened. No sign of life. He returned to meet Elisha and told him the child's still dead. And instead of going directly himself, Elisha sends uh, Gehazi ahead with his staff and this sort of seemed to follow everything else that Elisha had been learning from Elijah. And what he even learned himself. If you remember the alliance last week with the three kings, and Elisha said, you guys need to go dig the ditches. I don't need to go with you. And then also with the woman, you go ahead with your sons, take the, take the jars and fill them on your own. It wasn't like Elisha had to be there. So in this situation, it's like, Gehazi, go ahead and go. I don't need to go with you. Look at verse 32. When Elisha arrived, the child was indeed dead, laying there on the prophet's bed. He went in alone, he shut the door behind him, and he prayed to the Lord. Then he laid down on the child's body, placing his mouth on the child's mouth, his eyes on the child's eyes, his hands on the child's hands. And as he stretched out on him, the child's body began to grow warm again. Elisha got up, he walked back and forth across the room once, and then stretched himself out again on the child. And Elisha prayed, and with great faith, because he knew God had worked the way that his mentor Elijah worked, something was going to happen. And he also prayed with great faith because he says God wanted this child to not be dead. Now there's a significant contrast here between the stretched out power of, of Elisha and Elisha and what they did, an authoritative command of Jesus raising the dead. Big difference, right? Although results were similar. It was almost as like Elisha and Elijah when they did this, it was almost like a begging God, don't let this child's life end this way. It's almost like a begging going on. Jesus is more of a command. Like, Lazarus, come out. I'm not even begging. I'm telling you, come back. And although miracles, for the most part, were done in an instant, yet sometimes there's maybe a step-by-step process like this was. This wasn't a, he walked into the room, laid the staff down, and boom, the child came back to life. It was a process. It was a step-by-step. And we see the same thing with Jesus in the healing with the blind man. In one of the miracles in which Jesus performed, he helped a blind man see. And it was a step-by-step process. And he goes, what do you see? He goes, I see something like as if a trees or something was moving around. And, and then eventually, boom, he saw. And I think sometimes we see these miracles and we think, that's the way God works, right? Instantly, it's like, no, sometimes maybe God works in the process. And the healing that we need and the miracle that we need in our life is not going to happen instantly. It might be a process. Something you've been praying for, saying, God, is this going to happen anytime soon? It's like, it will, but maybe not immediately. And it's a healing process. Look at uh, verse 35. This time the boy sneezed seven times and he opened his eyes. Then Elisha summoned Gehazi, called the child's mother, he said. And when she came in, Elisha said, here, take your son. And she fell at his feet and bowed before him, overwhelmed with gratitude. Then she took her son in her arms and carried him downstairs. What an amazing story, isn't it? So we've had two stories. 
Two incredible miracles, right? Let's go to miracle number three. Starting verse 38. Elisha now returned to Gilgal, and there was a famine in the land. One day as a group of prophets were seated before him, he said to the servant, put a large pot on the fire, make some stew for the rest of the group. This is awesome, right? They've had a famine, they're going to sit down and eat together. Look at verse 39. One of the young men went out to the field to gather herbs, came back with a pocket full of wild gourds. He shredded them, put them in the pot without realizing they're poisonous. Oops. Verse 40. Some of the stew was served to the men, but after they had eaten a a bite or two, they cried out, Man of God, there's poison in this stew. So they wouldn't eat it. Elisha said, Bring me some flour, bring some meal. And he threw it into the pot and said, Now it's all right, go ahead and eat it. And it did not harm them. Can you imagine that? You're at some house or maybe you're at a restaurant and you're eating and all of a sudden you got food poisoning and it isn't just like I'm going to get sick to my stomach for a while. This is probably going to kill you. And all of a sudden you're thinking, I'm eating poisons. Can you, how do you think that one guy felt that? It went out and got the wild gourds. I mean, like, I, I thought you said the green ones. I'm sorry. I didn't know you meant yellow, right? Did you feel bad for that guy? And here you are, you're sitting around now. It's like, this is, went from this ain't funny anymore to this is serious. And Elisha's like, all cool and calm. like, there, let me throw some flour in there. All right, stir it up. All right, let's eat it, guys. We're all good now. Come on, right? Really? That's, that's the way it worked? Yes. That's the way it worked. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. He said, there is death in the pot. How is the church to meet it? I believe it's to imitate Elisha. We need not, listen, we need not attempt to get the wild gourds out of the pot. They're cut too small and ate too cunningly, all mixed up. They've entered too closely into the whole mass of teaching to be removed. What then? We must look to God for help. And use the means indicated here. Bring the meal or bring the flour. Good wholesome food was cast into the poisonous stuff. And by God's gracious working, it killed the poison. And the church must cast the blessed gospel, the grace of God, into the poison pottage. False doctrine will not be able to destroy men's souls as it now does. Charles Spurgeon said, if you even look like at the church, like that pot of stew, there's, sometimes there's poison in the mix. Okay? Whether it's gossip, whether it's anger, whether it's bitterness, whether it's unforgiveness within a church body, that could really kill a church. And what the church needs is not to just pull out the unforgiveness or the bitterness or the anger, but to make sure we're throwing the right ingredients into the pot to kill the poison. Let's face it, we are a church of imperfect people, right? Worshiping a perfect God. That's just who we are. And some of us walk in here often like a little bit of poison in us. Not intentionally. But because we sin, because we mess up, it's like we've got a little bit of that poison in us. And it's very easy for us to take our, if maybe we heard some false teaching, we bring that in. Or maybe we're just really mad and unforgiving and we come in and we take that anger towards somebody else in here. And what does it do? It just kills the church. And God says, instead of removing it, let's pour some goodness into it. Let's pour truth into it. And yes, I believe God wants to remove the sin, no doubt about it. But I believe he wants to stir the pot with his truth, with his love, with his goodness, with his grace, with his mercy, and make once what was polluted and poisonous whole again. 
There's obviously a lot of things going out there in our world today, and you think about this, the music we listen to, the entertainment, words that are spoken, teachings. Sometimes it's like poison, right? Where it's the point, it's hard to remove it. How do you walk into a public school telling your kids, hey, I don't want you using that kind of language, I don't want you to listen to that kind of stuff, but you walk into a public school and you walk down the hallway and that's all you hear. How do you purge a place like that of what you hear? Well, if you can't purge it, why don't we pour into it? You hear what I'm saying, church? Your school is your local mission field. Teenagers, your school is your local mission field. Forget about raising money to go to the Dominican Republic. Your back neighborhood, your school, your teams, your clubs that you're a part of, they need the truth of God. So maybe instead of thinking what we need to remove from the pot, maybe we need to add into the pot God's goodness. Maybe we need to allow God's words, what we take, and we dip that into the church and that into the schools and that into our workplace, wherever it may be. Maybe things at home are rough too. You get to pour some more God's word into your home. Let's read on. Verse 42. One day a man from Belshazzar brought the man of God a sack of fresh grain, 20 loaves of barley bread made from the first grain of his harvest. And Elisha said, give it to the people so they can eat. What? His servant exclaimed. Feed a hundred people with only this? But Elisha repeated, give it to the people so they can eat. For this is what the Lord says. Everyone will eat. There'll be even some left over. And when he gave it to the people, there was plenty for all, and there was some left over, just as the Lord promised. Does that remind you of another story? In the book of Matthew, chapter 14, we're not going to turn there, but Matthew chapter 14, verse 16 to 20, Jesus is with his disciples, and he's got thousands of people around. And they've been teaching and healing people all day. And his disciples are like, hey, um, Jesus checked out my sundial, and um, it's time to eat, right? So send them all home, would you please? And what does Jesus say? You feed them. Isn't that awesome? It's like, hey, God, what are you going to do about this? God's like, I, I want to work through you. So that's what Jesus did with the disciples, right? You feed them. What's going on here? Let's see here. Elisha said, give it to the people. Saying, what? And Sir said, yeah, go ahead. Feed 100 people with only this. And they took small amounts of food, like the disciples. And the disciples, what, broke it up and fed all these thousands, 5,000 plus people. A little bit of fish, a little bit of bread. And next thing you know, there's baskets left over. I love when you look at the Old Testament and New Testament, you see some of these similarities. God said, I know you're lacking right now, but I want to bless abundantly. I want to bless abundantly. Elisha trusted the promise God. He acted upon it, and this miraculous thing took place. Now, why read 2 Kings chapter 4? I understand. Some people, you know, what we could have done today, we could have taken those four stories that could have had four sermons. It could have been a great series, right? Okay? Instead, we took four stories and we put them into one sermon because as I read through that chapter and I read through it again, read through it again, here's what I read. I read a miracle about olive oil. How God had compassion for the poor. And then I read about that dead son. I thought about how God has compassion for these parents over death. And then I read about that poison soup. And I thought about how God has compassion for those who are sick and need healing. And then I read about the bread for and had compassion for the hungry, those who are lacking physical needs. 
And as I read through this chapter, all I've seen was that God shows his compassion and love over and over and over again. Whatever the situation is, whether you have a lot or you have little, whether you're facing death or you're facing life, whether you're facing a stark situation that you just need to pour in some light, like that poisonous soup, guess what? In every and any situation, God says, I'm a God of love. I'm a God of compassion. And I want to pour into this. So when I look back at the way we started today, when I'm thinking about what's happened down south, when I'm thinking about the fights, when I'm thinking about the tension and the arguments, and I ask this question, where's God? Is he a God of love? I look back to this passage and say, he is a God of love. Take the question mark out, put the exclamation point in. God is a God of love. Amen? Look at the person next to you and say, God is a God of love. Tell them. Absolutely. Now tell another person. And for those of you that didn't turn yet, because you might be visiting and you weren't used to that, okay, I understand, okay? You're like, was I really supposed to do that? And for those of you that don't like playing that game with me, like, mm, I'm not doing anything, okay? I can't do anything. Can't knock you out of the game. But that's what we need to remember. We need to tell ourselves. We need to tell each other. God's a God of love. He is. He is. And when you turn on the news and you see all that hatred and anger, you just need to pray over that TV right there. It's like, God, they need to know there is a God of love. You exist. You are real. And you show your compassion in so many ways. We know that God is a God of justice, right? Now, listen, I don't want you to get up here like, oh, God is love and all this kind of stuff. But we do need to know the balanced truth here. And that is this. God is also a God of justice. He is a holy God. He is a righteous God, and he does judge. And we better make sure that we are right with God. Romans chapter 2 clearly explains and places that one out, that God will judge sin. Oh, yeah. Each and every one of us will stand before God. But we're told in Romans 3.23 what? That we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of that glory of God. But Romans 5.8 tells us that while we are still sinners, what? Christ died for us. In the midst of our sin, our holy God says, I can't look at you because of that sin. Jesus Christ steps in between us and he sees us through Christ and we are forgiven when we seek that, when we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord, we're saved. And that holy, just, righteous God looks on us and says, I forgive you. I want to pour my blessings out on you. I love you. God cares for us. God loves us. God has compassion for us. Do an inventory of everything you own. I'm going to tell you right now, God cares more for your souls than your shoes. He does. He cares more about your spiritual life than your lifestyle. You might be trying to fit in with a certain group or look special for another person. God cares more about your spiritual life than that. And in those moments when we're lacking, when we're sick, when we're facing death or pain, in a world that it just seems tension so high and fighting is so strong, you know what's more fashionable than all that is just peace. Remember that God is our God of love. Before we close, I'm going to ask you to open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. You turn there with me, please. It's at the back of the Bible. Right before you get to Revelation, 1 John chapter 4. 
And in 1 John chapter 4, I want to read this passage to you as we close. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. First John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. It says this, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is born of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God. For God is love. You want to define love? God is love. Look at verse 9. God showed how much he loved us by sending his only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. It's not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. We think we know what love is. Oh, I know what I love. I know what love is all about. I can define love. I love God. It's like, no, that's not love. Love is that God loved us first and sent his son for us. Dear friends, verse 11, since God loved us so much, loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one's ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us. And his love has been brought to full expression through us. When we love other people, God's love is expressed through us. When we say, I love God, well, you better be loving God by loving others. And as you love others, you're showing that love to God and you're showing people that you're loving the love of God. This world needs us to show them the love of God. School, work, your own home, wherever it may be. He sees your deepest needs. I mean, I know you're sitting there saying, but Rex, what about what's going on in my life? God sees it. He loves you. He loves you right where you're at, but he doesn't want you to stay there. He wants you to go on from there. And he's willing to provide you with everything you need to move on from there. If you need forgiveness, he'll forgive you today. If you need strength, he'll give you the strength to make it through the day. If you need peace, he'll give you the peace you need. Let me ask you this. So have you received that gift of love through Jesus Christ? Have you asked for forgiveness? Have you confessed your sins to a holy God, a just God? If you haven't, this would be a good time to do it. And if this, uh, if this again, this is you sinner saying, I've done that. Let me ask you this, okay? If your family or maybe your workplace or maybe uh, your school is that pot of stew that's a little poison right now, ask God, God, do you want me to be that flower? Do you want me to be that ingredient to go in there and be your love to help change the flavor? I bet he wants you to. But why don't you talk to him about that? Would you please stand? Definitely what we need right now is the most incredible ingredient. That's God's love, right? Oh, it's there. It's always been there. He's shown his mercy, grace, and love to us. We just need to go share it with the world now. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an awesome God you are. Thank you, Lord, for the story of Elisha and these incredible miracles. But, God, every miracle is based on your love. For the poor, for the well-off for those who have been wanting something for so long but just afraid to say it. For those who are sick, those who are hurting, those facing death. For those that are just surrounded maybe by a poison of some sort, whether it's a spiritual poison or something else, God, your love is there to bring healing, to bring hope, to bring peace. 
God, we pray right now that as we sing this last song, keep speaking to us, God. May your spirit just keep speaking to us. And if we need to surrender to you, let's surrender now. And if we need to recommit to you something, let's recommit now. God, don't let us walk out of here with unfinished business. We sing to you now, God, because you are worthy to be sung to. In your name we pray. Amen.